Joel's not even here today, and yet this service has been very Farber full, hasn't it? <laughs> it's amazing. It's been a great last 36 hours of ministry and worship in this building. Friday night, the building was full of families with kids who were participating in the Connected Christmas here. There were different stations and different kinds of games to play in all of the rooms around, and families were having a lot of fun together. And then Saturday morning, the building was filled with women who had a great event here. Uh, I wasn't invited, so I've heard it was a great event. I don't have any personal experience with that. I'm not bitter about that. Uh, but uh, my understanding is it was a great Saturday morning. And then last night, uh, our Spanish-speaking discipleship ministry kicked off here and had a great time uh, planning and doing some discipleship here as a part of the weekend. And so it's been a wonderful 36 hours of ministry here at Friendship. And now we come together as a family in order to celebrate Jesus further. Before we get to our sermon and of the, the next sermon in our Romans Road series, I'd love for us to spend a couple of moments today praying together. Uh, Jesus says that God's house is to be a house of prayer, and that's us. We're the house of God. We're called to be a people of prayer, and so I'd love for us to spend a few minutes praying this morning. And I'm just going to lead us through some different categories of prayer. And you guys can bow your heads and just pray where you are as I lead us through these different categories. Let's pray together. Jesus said, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Would you take a moment and praise and thank God for all that he is and all that he's done? Would you exalt and hallow God? Jesus continues, your kingdom come. Would you take a moment and pray for friends, family, neighbors, coworkers who have not experienced the reign and the rule of Jesus in their lives? Would you pray for Jesus' kingdom and rule to come into the lives of your friends and family who haven't experienced that yet? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Would you pray for God's expressed will to be done in certain situations in your life that you're facing? Would you pray for God's stated expressed will to be done this morning? God has said his will for this morning is that we would encourage each other and stir each other up to greater love. Would you pray for that? God's expressed his desire that the word would be preached in season and out season. Would you pray for that? God has expressed his will that we would not simply be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Would you pray for God's will in that? Jesus continues on, give us this day our daily bread. Would you pray for needs that you have or needs that those around you have? Would you pray for God to be meeting the needs of Mary Barron's family as we celebrate her life today? Pray for God to be the, the comfort and the strength in their life. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Would you confess sin before the Lord? 
and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Would you pray about those sins that entangle you most? Would you pray for freedom from temptation? Would you pray that God would empower you when you face temptation in those areas? Would you pray for victory over sin in the sins that entangle you most? Father, what a blessing it is that we can come before you at all, that we're able to come boldly before your throne and call you Abba, Father. We are so thankful for that gracious privilege that's been given to us, and we recognize that you're not just Abba, you're not just Father, you're our Father in heaven, the one who has made and sustains all things, the one who has all power and authority and can see good done in the lives of your people, and we trust you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Today is our last day in our sermon series entitled Romans Road. Next week, we're going to launch into our Christmas series, uh, which is called Majesty, and spend some time looking at who Jesus is and his majesty in the weeks that are to follow. But today, we're finishing up this final sermon in the Romans Road series. And as we do, I'd like to bring back a diagram that I've been using throughout this series in order to help summarize the teaching in the first four chapters of the book of Romans. We have seen with this diagram that Romans teaches that there are two paths that a person may be on in their life, and only two paths. One is the path of obedience and love and righteousness. And the other path that a person can be on is the path of selfishness, disobedience, and sin. Romans chapter 2, verses 5 through 8 says, There will come a day of judgment. And those who are on the path of obedience and love will enter fully into the eternal life that God has prepared for them. But those who remain on the path of selfishness and disobedience will enter into what Romans chapter 2 verse 8 referred to as the wrath and fury of God towards sin. And we have seen clearly in the book of Romans the bad news that all of us start out on the bottom path, that we are not fundamentally good as people. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 and 11 said, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. Everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glorious purpose for which God made them. Everyone. And God says if we stay on that pathway of sin and selfishness, ultimately on the day of judgment, what we face is God's wrath towards sin poured out. And so the question becomes, how can we switch paths? How can I switch paths from the bottom path of sin and disobedience to the top path of love and righteousness? How can I switch paths from that bottom path of death to the top path of life? And God has been answering this question over and over again in our study of Romans. But God wants to make sure that we get this. And so in Romans chapter 4, he's going to review everything that we've seen. And as he does so, he's going to use an Old Testament character as the foundation for the teaching about how a person can move from one path to another in Romans chapter 4. And that Old Testament person's name is Abraham. Abraham, the, the father of the Jews. 
Some think of him as the father of faith. Actually, Abraham is going to be uh, our sermon series in January and February. He's going to be the central character of that sermon series in January and February. And here, Paul uses Abraham as a foundation in order to ask the question, how is it that we can be declared righteous? How is it that we can change paths and be on the path of salvation? And so with Abraham in mind, he begins to ask that question, and he starts with this. Is it possible that we can do enough good works in order to move from the bottom path of death to the top path of life? Is that a possibility for us? He says, what what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, according to his own works, his own effort, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Were you able to pick up on the theme word running throughout verses 1 through 8? Right? Ho- hopefully you were. It was in red and it was underlined, if that's a question for you still at this point. Right? It's the word counted. Some of your translations have the word credited instead. How is it possible that we can be counted righteous in the courtroom of God? How is it possible that our sins cannot be counted against us? How is it possible that we can be counted as being on the upper path that leads to eternal life? How is that possible? Is it possible by me doing enough good and enough righteousness in my own effort? Paul says clearly the answer to that is no. There is no one who can do enough good in order to reach that top path on their own. Because the standard for righteousness is what? It's God's character. That's the standard. We're to be holy as he is holy. We're to love as Jesus loves. 1 John 3, 3, we're to be pure as he is pure. As God is perfect in honesty and truth, so we're to be perfect in honesty of truth. God's character is the standard, and how far short does the life I've lived fall of that standard? Right? You, you can't measure it, can you? You can't measure how far short I fall of the standard of God's perfect character. And yet, I'm regularly tempted, and and maybe some of you are as well, to look around at other people and feel pretty good about how I'm doing. Anyone else? I'm tempted to look around and go, well, I mean, there have been a lot of terrible people. I'm better than Hitler. I'm better than Stalin. I got high standards. I'm better than that actor who's on wife number five. I'm better than all that mess that's on the nightly news. I don't have to be on social media very long before I'm better than all of that mess. Right? We have this terrible tendency to look horizontally at the people around us 
and feel pretty good about how we're doing, God never wants us to compare ourselves with others. The only right comparison is, am I holy as he is holy? Do I match perfectly the character of God? I was made to be in his image, to perfectly represent him and be in his likeness. Do I do that? The answer is absolutely not. I fall infinitely short of that standard. And so how much sense does it make for me to look around at a bunch of other people who fall infinitely short of the standard and feel good about myself? It's like if we had a goal. And that goal was for us to jump to the moon. Right? Are you ready? Right? That, that's the goal. We are all going to try and jump to the moon. Now, my vertical jump is 24 inches. But when I look at you, your vertical jump is only 12 inches. How much sense does it make for me to look at your 12-inch vertical jump and begin to experience some sort of pride about my 24-inch vertical jump? What's the goal again? To jump to the moon. How far short does my 24 inches fall of jumping to the moon? 15.2 billion inches if you haven't done the math. There's no place for pride in comparing ourselves to others. The standard is God and his perfect holiness and his perfect righteousness, and I fall infinitely short, and so does every other person who's ever lived. And so we can't get to the path of righteousness through our own works and our own efforts. And Paul says, Abraham's a great example that this isn't how that works. Because God told Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. No, no, you don't have any kids yet, but I'm going to make you into a great nation. And Genesis chapter 15, verse 6 says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him, it was counted to him as righteousness. Did Abraham gain that righteousness through doing enough good works? No, that's Paul's point. No, that's not how it comes about. And so can we get from the bottom path to the top path through good works? God wants us to understand here in Romans 4, no, absolutely not. Well, maybe there's another way. Maybe I can get from the bottom path to the top path by having the right religious symbols in my lives, in my life. And he's going to focus in on one particular religious symbol that was important to the Jews here, the symbol of circumcision. Is that what gets me from bottom path to top path? In this blessing, then, only, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Oh my goodness, that's a lot of circumcision going on, right? Circumcised, uncircumcised. By the time we're done reading all of this, I'm a little bit confused about everything that is going on. How is it possible to be counted righteous? Is it possible through having the right symbol? And here the idea is the old covenant symbol of circumcision. Is that how we get there? Paul's answer to that is clearly no. 
The symbol isn't what does it. How do we know? Paul says, because Abraham was credited as righteous decades before he was ever circumcised. That's the argument Paul's making here. Decades before he was ever circumcised, God counted him as righteous. And so it has to be based on something else, not these religious symbols. A symbol never brings a reality into being. A symbol only recognizes a reality that already exists. Right? A symbol never brings a reality into being. It only recognizes a reality that already exists. I, I have an example of a symbol up here. Right? It's, it's a jacket that actually has, uh, because of the way high school things work, a number of different symbols that represent my life. And if, if you look at this jacket, you can actually find out quite a bit about me. You can find out that I was a part of the girls' gymnastics team. As a matter of fact, over here it says I was, I guess, captain of the girls' gymnastics team. And I was a girls' diver and a girls' swimmer and on the girls' track team. Over here it says I played in the orchestra, which is interesting. How about that? And apparently I graduated from high school in 2017. <clears throat> now you may doubt that in fact I was a captain of a girls' gymnastics team. But I would contend to you, I have the proof right here. Right here it says, I was captain of the girls' gymnastics team. How can you argue with that? That's, that's not the way the symbol works, is it? The symbol doesn't create the reality. I don't say, well, I have this symbol, therefore the reality is true. No, no the symbol is meant to represent a reality that already exists. And if that reality doesn't already exist, then the symbol is worthless, even deceptive. And that's true of the Old Covenant symbol, and it's true of some of the symbols that are important to us within the New Covenant. Faith in Jesus, there's a number of different signs and symbols that we participate in. Baptism is a symbol that we participate in. For some, it was coming forward at a conference. For others, it was praying a sinner's prayer. For still others, it's taking communion. These are symbols that go along with the faith that we have, but they don't create the reality. They're just symbols that represent a reality that already exists. And if we don't have a genuine faith in Jesus, then the symbols are of no good to us. Right? No good to us. Can we move from the bottom path to the top path simply by having the right symbols? No, absolutely not. That's not how it works. All right, what else should we try? Uh, doing enough good works didn't uh, work out for us. The right religious symbols. Well, how about an exacting adherence to the Old Testament law? Maybe that's what it's all about. He says, for the promise of, to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law. Oh boy, that doesn't sound good for my, my hypothesis here, does it? But through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. Maybe in this case, there's someone who's splitting hairs and they say, well, it's not really about just doing random good works and it's not really about these symbols, these religious symbols. Maybe it is about a very exacting adherence to the Old Testament law. 
And to that, Paul says, nope, that's not how it happens either. And you can tell that's not how it happens because Abraham was credited as righteous 430 years before the law was ever given to Israel. On top of that, Paul says, and the law never worked to produce real righteousness among God's people. The law brought about God's wrath because the law simply showed people what was right and what was wrong. And they kept choosing the wrong because the law doesn't empower us to choose what is right. It simply teaches us what's right and wrong. Yes, it can convict us when we do the wrong, but there's no internal power, what they used to call unction, that comes about through the law. That has to come through something else, Paul says. It's not simply the law. The law can't get this done either. So how is it that we move from the bottom path to the top path? How is it that we can be declared righteous? It's not through good works. It's not through religious symbols. It's not through the law. What is it? How is it that we can move from the path of death to the path of life? Chances are you've already picked it up as we've been reading these verses, right? You know the answer. Look at some of what we've already read. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Verse 5, And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Verse 10, we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Verse 11, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Verse 13, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of what? Faith. Are you picking up what Paul is laying down here? How is it that a person can move from the bottom path to the top path? It is only through faith and belief in Jesus Christ. That's it. We can't do it through good works. We can't do it through religious symbols. We can't do it through adherence to the law. The only way that a person can be declared righteous is through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what Paul goes on to say in the verses that follow this. He says, that is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, the Jew, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, the Gentile, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you uh, the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist." It doesn't matter if you're a Jewish adherent who's been working really hard to try and keep the law or if you are a Gentile believer who is only connected to Abraham through faith and not through lineage. It doesn't matter. Jew, Gentile alike, the only way to move from the path of death to the path of life is through faith and belief in Jesus Christ. I, I love the way the reformer Martin Luther put it. He said, God our Father has made all things depend on faith so that whoever has faith will have everything. And whoever does not have faith will have nothing. How is it that we move from the bottom path to the top path? It is through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, as we continue to consider Abraham as an example, we see that while faith alone is what brings us to a place where we are justified by God, that faith never remains alone. 
that faith always leads us to a life of love for God and obedience to our God. And so we read in the verses that follow, In hope he, Abraham, believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No, distrust made him waver. I'm sorry, no distrust made him waver considering the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham was credited as righteous because he believed and had faith in God. But that faith was proven true by Abraham's obedience. That faith was proven true by the work that Abraham did that flowed out of that faith. Right? What is it that proved Abraham's faith to be true? He slept with his wife. Right? Isn't that what proved his faith to be true? God said, you are going to be the father of a great nation. Sarah is going to bear you a child. Isaac was not a virgin birth, friends. And at a hundred, this is the point Paul's making, at a hundred, when his body was virtually dead and his wife was 90 and had been barren his entire life, Abraham had faith and that faith led to active obedience and he slept with his wife who conceived and gave birth. All right, now, as I look around, I can see a number of husbands who are excited about this application of faith. This is a unique promise of God, friends. Uh, maybe if you're a hundred, you can go ahead and apply it in this way. Faith never remains alone. It always leads to obedience. Now, now let's be clear again. I know we've done this a million times, but I'm going to come back to it again. Obedience never causes us to move from the bottom path to the top path. You cannot be obedient enough to make that move. That only happens through faith and belief in Jesus. But when, through faith, you move onto that upper pathway, it is a pathway of what? Of obedience. It is a pathway filled with love for God and love for other people. Which is why Jesus says in Matthew 7, Not everyone who says to me on that day, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Real faith. There's all kinds of people who will claim faith, who, who will say, but Jesus, I had faith in you. And Jesus says, you can tell the people who have a genuine faith because they've entered the top path. It's a path of obedience. It's a path where life is about loving God, loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The, the only way to enter the path is through faith, and faith is proven true through our obedience. Abraham here, as his life is being recounted in Romans chapter 4, is a lesson for all of us. This isn't just about Abraham being able to move from bottom path to top path through faith. Paul says, no, no, you guys, this is how it works for each and every one of us. Look at the next words. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. 
It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. These lessons aren't just about how Abraham was declared righteous. They're not just about how Abraham moved from the bottom path to the top path. Paul says these lessons are for all of us. Abraham moved to the top path through faith, and that's how all of us move to the top path. It is through faith in our Lord. It absolutely doesn't come through enough good works or having the right religious symbols or by being uh, extra careful about adhering to the Old Testament law. It absolutely comes. The way that a person moves from the bottom path to the top path is through faith. That is always the cause of us moving into the righteousness of God in our life. And so the natural question is, do we have that faith in Jesus? Do we have that faith in Jesus that has moved us from the bottom path of sin and disobedience to the top path of righteousness and love? Let me just give you a minute. Go ahead and, and bow your heads and just spend some time with the Lord with that question. Do I have that faith that God calls us to that saves me from my sins and brings me to a place of obedience to Jesus? Every time we participate in the Lord's Supper, we're doing so as subjects in the kingdom of God, children in the family of God, celebrating what he's done in order to bring us to that top path, the path of life. Celebrating that we will dwell with him forever and all that is good. Celebrating the sacrifice that Jesus made, giving himself so that this would be true, so that he would take our punishment upon himself and we would gain the righteousness of Jesus. As we participate in the Lord's Supper today, I want to encourage you to do so fully celebrating, celebrating what Jesus has done on your behalf. As you take that bread that represents Jesus' body that's been given for you, as you take that cup that represents Jesus' shed blood so that you could be forgiven, let's celebrate today what he has done so that we might enter into that family of God.